if you weren't able to be here last week, we launched a new series last week on the family. And we're calling the series The Family Tree. When you hear that expression, family tree, I think what most people think of naturally is their genealogical family tree, which really isn't. I mean, it's not really a tree. It's, a, it's just a way of diagramming uh, your genealogical lineage. That's not what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about two very real trees uh, that the Bible refers to around which people tend to ideologically and spiritually orient their lives. And each of these trees uh, have very different implications for the way families operate and treat one another. One of those trees is the knowledge of, the good, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree that Adam and Eve ate from in the Garden of Eden. And there are all sorts of rotten fruit that comes from this tree and that, that can devastate families. Uh, the other tree is the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that some of you think, well, that doesn't sound like a tree, but the New Testament often refers to the cross as a tree. Now, again, people orient their lives ideologically and spiritually around one of these two trees, and those have enormous implications for the family. I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Colossians chapter 1. We spent some time in Colossians last week. I want to do so again this week, Colossians chapter 1 in the New Testament. And here's what I want to do today. I want to talk about one of the tragic fruits, uh, if you will, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the devastating effect that it has on a family. And specifically, what I want to talk about today is legalism. Legalism. It's important that you understand, and here's what I want to do. It's important that you understand where legalism come from, comes from. So first, I want to explain uh, the human origins of legalism, okay? Second, I want to talk about what legalism, what legalism is exactly. Third, I want to explain the effect of legalism on the family. I want to get very practical. And then finally, I want to give you the alternative legalism, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's start with where legalism comes from. It has human origins, okay? I want to talk about the human origins of legalism first. Let's start with verse 21 of Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Apostle Paul is writing, he's writing to a very young church, and he tells them, and this is a very important point of theology that you understand. He says, once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, I want to stop there, because I want to understand, I want to make sure that everybody understands what we're being told. We're being reminded here that as a result of Adam and Eve, uh, eating from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying that the natural state of every human being that is born into the world is to rebel against God. That's our natural state. That's our natural instinct. It's to rebel against God. That's what Adam and Eve's sin was. That's why they ate from that tree. Uh, they wanted autonomy from God. They didn't want God to decide for them what was right and wrong. They wanted to do that themselves. They didn't want to have their lives have to revolve around God. They didn't want Him to be their king, their authority. They wanted to be their own authority. And we've inherited from them that same rebellious spirit of autonomy. That's what Paul means when he says that once we were alienated, when we were born into the world, we, were, we, can't, we come into this world alienated from God. And listen to me, if you're honest with yourself, I think this has to resonate with you. It certainly does with me. Uh, let me just give you an example. If somebody hurts me, if somebody does something that hurts me or someone I love deeply, here's naturally, you know what I want to do? I want to nurture a good hatred for those people. That's my natural desire. It's to hate them. 
maybe even to hurt them back in some way, shape, or form. I don't naturally, I don't naturally enjoy being told by God that I have to forgive people and love them. Do you naturally like that? Isn't there a part of you that chafes at that? Like, let me give you another example. Isn't there a part of you that chafes at being commanded by God to give your money sacrificially rather than spending it all on yourself? Is there a part of you that chafes at that? Or let me give you another example. If, you, if you're, say, at a restaurant and you want a third or fourth or fifth glass of wine, how much do you like the idea that God tells you not to be drunk with wine? Is there a part of you that is bothered by that? Don't you hate that? Don't you want to just be able to do what you want to do when you want to do it? That's what Paul is talking about here. That resistance, that chafing when you brush up against God's commands in scriptures, in the scriptures. That's what Paul means when he says that we're alienated from God since birth. But there's a problem here. The problem with our desire for autonomy, the problem with our desire to not have God be our king, to rule over our own lives, to make our own decisions about what life means and what's right and what's wrong and all of that, the problem is this, that a life alienated from God, uh, a life lived outside of his rule and reign is absolutely incoherent if you think it out. Like if you take it to its ultimate, if you take it to its logical conclusion. Now, that's not just a Christian pastor's conclusion. I want you to listen to this philosopher. His name is Bertrand Russell. Many of you know uh, Bertrand Russell. Uh, Russell was, uh, like all of us, alienated from God in his unique form of alienation. He, he was an atheist. Didn't believe God existed at all. And I want you to read this. This is a little lengthy, but I think it's, I think it's worth it. He's talking, about, he's talking about what life means if there is no God. This is what he came to believe, that there is no God, and this is what life came to mean. He says, he says this. He says that man's origin, his growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs, are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. In other words, in other words the, there is no God that created man, uh, that, that, that uh, atoms bouncing off one another created humanity, created you. Like There's no design for your life. It's just an accident. He says, he says because it's an accident... He says all, that all the labors of, of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruin. He's saying, he's saying everything that man does, if there is no God, everything that man does, it's meaningless and it's worthless. It'll all It'll all just be destroyed one day. He says, all these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. And here's what he came to. This, was, this is what he came to in his own life. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Unyielding despair. That's what life is, Bertrand Russell says. If you think it out, if there is no God, if you try to live your life alienated from God, that's what life is, and that's all it can be. Unyielding despair. Happy Father's Day. That's a great thought today, right? 
But here's the thing, at least Bertrand Russell was being intellectually honest. See, life is incoherent, it's meaningless without God. And Russell says, if you think it out to his logical conclusion, despair is the only intellectually consistent result of life outside of the authority of the ex- in the existence of God. Right? Now, he, but you have to understand something, right? Philosophers and religious leaders throughout history still have tried to make life coherent without God. And I'm going to just show you how. Now, stick with me here for just a moment. This might seem like uh, this might seem like a lot to process for the moment, but if you stick with me, I promise you the payoff is going to be great. If you boil all human philosophies and all human religions down to their core, all of them come to three conclusions. Okay? Three conclusions, all of which demonstrate man's alienation from God. Here's the three conclusions. One is that there is no God. And there are a number of philosophers that have believed that. I've listed some of them here for you. The second is... You are God. So, so like some guys, some philosophers say, there is no God. Others will say, well, you're God. And like if you've ever heard of the you know, very popular uh, authors uh, today, Wayne Dyer, uh, Eckhart Tolle, Deepak Chopra, that's what they believe. They believe that you're God. Here's the third conclusion. Um, one is there is no God. The second is, well, okay, you are God. But then the third conclusion and this is what human religion looks like, is that there are gods, but not the God of the Bible. Okay? Uh, there are no gods, you're God, or there are gods, but not the God of the Bible. Those, that, that's, what all, that's what all human philosophy, that's what all human religion boils down to. One of those three conclusions. Okay? And ideologically and spiritually, all of those are built around uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, the, the rotten fruit of the desire to be free of God as he reveals himself in the scriptures. Right? So all comes from, it all comes from our alienation from God. Does, this, does that make sense to you? Now, uh, forgive me again, because this is going to sound a little repetitious and somewhat similar from last week, but I think you need to see again that all of these philosophies and religions teach this. Okay? Here's what they all teach. They teach believe plus obey, and you'll be saved. Now, that sounds odd to you that a philosophy talks about being saved, but they all do. They all say, believe plus obey, and you will be saved. Let me show you what I mean. So let's, let's, use, the one, let's use the philosophers that say there is no God. Here's what they say. Believe that there is no God plus obey. Now, here's the thing. If there is no God, life is incoherent. So philosophers always try to find some system of ethics so that we can live with each other, even though there is no God. They come up with their own set of ethics. And so what you have to do is believe there's no God, plus obey the ethical system proposed by the philosopher, and you will be saved from the incoherence of life with no God. Okay? That's what they're teaching. Believe plus obey, and you'll be saved. Here's the second. Some people say, you are God. Okay, here we go. Believe that you're God plus obey. You've got to learn how to tap into your godhood and then you will be saved. In other words, you'll reach your potential if you can learn how to tap into your Godhood. Believe plus obey equals you're saved. Here's the third. Some philosophers teach there are gods, but not the God of the Bible. So like, you know, Hinduism, Judaism, uh, Islam, uh, Mormonism, they all, they all teach this. Okay? There are gods, but not God of the Bible. Here we go. Believe in the God of your chosen religion, whatever the God is, plus obey whatever the code of conduct, the code of ethics for that religion is, and you will be saved. Okay? 
See, they all teach this. Believe plus obey equals you're saved. Now, all of these have in common, you see, <clears throat> they have this in common, that they require you to believe something and to do something. You have to obey. You have to perform if you want to be saved from whatever it is uh, that you want to be saved from. And there's a reason why all of these work off this same common idea. And the reason is, it's all, all of us have this common desire for autonomy from God. You see, because of our autonomy from God, when human beings come up with a philosophy or a religion, it always involves the idea of self-justification through human performance. That's the rotten fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You have to perform. You have to obey. You have to live up to something in order to be justified. That's, that's the common fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's rotten, and it has devastating effects. And I'll show you in just a moment. First, though, I want to talk about, let's, or next, let's talk about this. Before we get to the effects that it has on a family, let's talk about what legalism actually is. And I think you'll see that it comes out of this same human desire for autonomy from God. Here we go. Legalism, let me just give you a definition of legalism. Legalism is the idea that you have to add what? What do you have to add? What does it say of the definition here? Human performance. That's what we've been talking about. Legalism is the idea that you have to add human performance to Jesus Christ for full acceptance with God. In other words, Here's the thing, legalism is just a, Christ, a, a pseudo-Christian version of the empty human philosophies and religions that we just talked about a moment ago. It too comes out of our alienation from God, which we inherited from Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Legalism says, just like the others do, believe, this time in Christ, plus obey, maybe it's the Mosaic Law, maybe it's some other code of conduct or the particular... A Christian community, maybe it's your own personal code of conduct, believe and obey and you'll be saved. That's what legalism teaches. It's just like all of these other human philosophies and other religions. It comes out of our human desire for autonomy from God. We do not want God to have to be involved even in our salvation. We don't want Him to do it for us. We have to do it ourselves. See? Now, now you have to understand that Paul the Apostle Paul combats this terrible ideology all over the place in the New Testament. People from every side keep trying to corrupt the gospel by teaching legalism to the early Christians. And we saw this last week in the Colossian church. I just want to look at it again. Chapter 2, verse 16, for instance, says, Therefore, don't let, Paul says, don't, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. People were teaching, listen, you, you have to believe, yeah, okay, fine, believe in Christ, that's fine, but you got to make sure you understand, you can't eat this stuff, you can't drink that stuff, you got to make sure that you attend the religious festival, you got to make sure that you, you, you go to the new moon celebration, uh, you got you to make sure that you show up on, on the Sabbath, okay, that's what they're teaching. Believe plus obey, believe in Christ, that's fine, but you got to obey if you want to be saved. Uh, Paul goes on, chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to his rules? Don't handle. And people have been saying, you can't touch that, you can't handle that, don't taste that. 
you got to believe in Christ, but you can't. You got to follow these rules, see? And Paul says these rules have to do with things that are all destined to perish with us. And he says they're all based on what? Merely human command and teaching. All of this coming out of our alienation from God. Now, undoubtedly, I think most of you here have probably confronted legalism in some form or fashion, right? You encountered, I don't know, maybe you went to a church, maybe your family went to a church, uh, maybe you knew somebody who was part of it, where, where they, they, uh, they gave you some list of rules that they said, you have to follow. I don't know what they were. Maybe you told that you had to quit drinking, or you had to start wearing long dresses, or you had to quit wearing makeup, or maybe you couldn't go to certain kinds of movies, some other code of conduct unique to the Christian community that you were exposed to in some way. The fascinating thing is that as much as legalistic people and churches like to think that they are uniquely pleasing to God and that the only people who are right are the people who behave in the same way that they do, as fascinating as, as much as they think that they're uniquely pleasing to God, what's fascinating is that their ideology is as anti-God as the philosophies and religions that I mentioned a moment ago. They are anti-God too, legalism. Legalism, it's a fruit, it's a rotten fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It tries to self-justify, tries to gain God's acceptance through human performance. That's what legalism is. It has human origin. Legalism is just a human philosophy. It's a human religion, just like every other human philosophy and religion in the world. Now, here's where I want to get very practical, okay? Now that we understand where it comes from, I want to get very practical, and I want to talk about the effect that legalism has on families. And let me just say sort of in general first that the effect that it has on families, the devastating effect it has on families, is that families uh, that uh, are legalistic are always trapped in a cycle of fear and guilt and shame. They're always trapped in a cycle of fear and guilt and shame. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that they're always trapped in fear and guilt and shame? Well, if you would, let's, let's go back to what human philosophies and religions always teach, and what legalism teaches. They always teach this. Believe, believe in Christ, let's say, plus obey whatever the code of conduct is, and you will be saved. What happens if I don't obey? What happens if I don't obey? I feel fear. I'm going to lose my salvation. God's going to be mad at me. He's going to punish me. That's, that's fearful. And you see, the problem is that anyone who is remotely honest with himself or herself knows that it's impossible to perfectly measure up to God's commands. And so legalists are constantly trapped in guilt and shame over their failure to perform. And you see, if parents are legalists, all of this fear and all of this guilt and all of this shame gets projected onto the rest of the family. And it does so in more ways than I can possibly mention, but I'm just going to mention four ways that this often plays itself out okay, in legalistic families. Here's one. Here's one way. Because fear is the dominant emotion of the family, legalistic families often discourage and demonize hard questions about Christianity or ideas that aren't consistent with Christianity. It's like they, they demonize them. They say, don't you dare ask that question. You can't ask that question. We're not going to talk about that. And they demonize. They discourage hard questions. Okay. 
And what, what happens as a result is it gives kids, and if you, if, you're, if you grew up in a family like this, you know what I'm talking about. It gives you the impression that Christianity, it's just about faith. It's not about reason at all. That it can't withstand intellectual scrutiny. And by the way, if you raise your kids like this, let me tell you something. That idea that Christianity cannot withstand intellectual scrutiny will be reinforced in college, if they go to college. And if they don't go to college, it's always reinforced in the culture at large. Everything says Christians are just dumb, uh, they're anti-intellectual, Christianity can't withstand intellectual scrutiny, it's only about faith, it's a leap of faith, there's no logic, there's no reason to it whatsoever. That's what they will say. And that's what this leaves kids believing. If you demonize their hard questions. That's what legalism does. One of the uh, people I follow on Twitter is a professor of theology, uh, theology and church history at Dallas Theological Seminary, which is where I graduated from, by the way. He made this comment recently on Twitter, and I, uh, I retweeted it to all of the people who follow me, and I think everybody needs to hear this. Listen to this. He says, No ideas are too stupid or dangerous to be heard, read, and discussed. No ideas are too stupid to be heard, read, and discussed. Ideas defeated by force. In other words, like if, like if, legalist and, if legalistic parents say, That's a, you can't talk about that, don't talk about that, we do not talk about that in our home, you can't think that, don't think that. Like if, if, if ideas are defeated by force and not by facts, well, they'll keep coming back. If truth is really on your side, You have nothing to fear in the hearing of those ideas. Real Christianity, you see, can withstand your kids' scrutiny. And real Christianity gives people the freedom to work through their questions and their beliefs so that one day they might love Christ with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their strength, and all of their mind. But legalism discourages that by demonizing hard questions. Here's the second thing that legalism does. Another devastating effect of legalism. Out of fear, legalistic families elevate personal preferences to moral standards. And what happens is that it leaves kids with the impression that Christianity is just a long list of illogical rules. Like, let me give you some examples of things that I've heard legalistic people uh, talk about. Rules, preferences that they have that they've made into rules for everybody, and they judge people by. Here's one. There's, you can't buy and live in a nice and expensive house. Like, if you live in too big of a house, you're wrong. Here's another one. Uh, You should only pay a certain amount of money for a car, and you can't drive a really nice car. That's what some legalistic, that's what what some families teach their their kids. It's a personal preference that they've made into a law. Here's another one. Um, There's only certain kinds of movies that you can see. Only G-rated movies can you see. Another one, whether you you can't enjoy fashion. Fashion is wrong. All fashion is wrong. Another one. Uh, here's another. Uh, you can't go trick-or-treating this year. You can't talk about Santa Claus. Um, we can't have a Christmas tree in our house. 
All of these are personal preferences, you see, that people have made into moral standards, and they judge other people by them. The Bible doesn't cover any of this stuff, but legalistic families elevate all of that to biblical standards, and they teach their kids as a result that Christianity is just lists of irrational rules. Anybody here experienced that in their life? Anybody here encountered anything like this? Here's the third uh, devastating effect of legalism. Legalistic families are ill-equipped to deal with their inner world because their focus is external. Uh, they're ill-equipped to deal with their emotions, with their inner world, uh, because their focus is always external. Uh, he here's what I mean by that. Uh, because of fear, legalism is only focused on making sure that you keep rules, you see. That you keep rules on the outside. It doesn't matter what you're thinking or feeling on the inside. It's just what you do on the outside. And so people who are trapped in legalism have a hard time being honest about themselves. They can't admit the complexity of their humanity, that there's a very real part of us as human beings, even if we believe in God, even if we have trusted Christ, there's a real part of us that is still rebellious against God. We have all sorts of fallen emotions that we feel. Legalistic families can't admit that they have mixed motives, even when they do the right thing. They can't admit that there are times that they struggle to believe, even though they do believe, they still struggle at certain times. See, all of this has to be denied and ignored. And so not only are problems and issues buried and hidden in legalistic families, not talked about, children from legalistic families often come out of the family emotionally stunted, with little to no self-awareness, and unable to connect deeply with other people. That's what often happens with legalistic families. This is the devastating effect that legalism, the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, has on families. Here's the fourth, the last one that I have time to talk about. Fourth. Legalistic families often use religious fear, guilt, and shame to motivate their children to be morally compliant. Anybody grow up in a in a home like that? Anybody ever encountered this? Legalistic families often use religious fear, guilt, and shame to motivate their children to be morally compliant. Here's the problem. Moral compliance isn't ultimately what we should be aiming for in our children. Here's what we should be aiming for, love for Christ and love for people. And hear me on this. Love for Christ and love for people is never, it's never created by fear, guilt, and shame. Now listen, you can get kids to be externally morally compliant by using fear, guilt, and shame. All you have to do is think about one of the most famous coaches in Indiana, and you understand that, Bobby Knight. He got kids to be compliant, okay? You can't get, you can't get, you can't get your kids to drink from the fountain of living water with fear, guilt, and shame. You can't do it. I, can tell, I can't tell you the number of people that I have met over the years who have rejected Christianity, or at least what they think Christianity is, because of fear-based legalism. I've met with, I've counseled, I've read, I've read about, I've listened to scores of people who tired of living in such fear that they never wanted anything to do with Christianity again once they got outside of their families and got on, on their own. When a family's spiritual and ideological family tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, legalism is one of the fruits of it. And the effect it has on a family is often devastating. 
Now, I, I, I don't want to leave you there. I want to leave you with this. Okay? I want to leave you with the alternative to legalism. The alternative to legalism. In the first two chapters of this book of Colossians, if you were to read it, you would notice that Paul spends in a significant amount of space, maybe even, maybe even you would think an inordinate amount of space, repetitive, trying to develop who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And the reason for this is that Paul, who was once an angry legalist himself, came to realize that God himself had come to earth in the person of Jesus, and he had paid for human rebellion by dying on a cross in the person of Jesus. And so Paul wants the Colossians to understand that Jesus is God in the flesh. And so he says to them, I'm going to have you look at some verses here. Have you look at chapter 1, verse 19 to start with. But, but let me just say something before, before we read this. I'm going to have you read a bunch of verses here in just a minute. But I want you to, to watch in these verses. I want you to listen for how many times Christ's greatness and Christ's performance on the cross is mentioned. And I want you to listen to how many times your greatness and how many times your uh, performance uh, is mentioned, okay? So how many times Christ is mentioned, how many times you're mentioned, okay? How many times Christ's greatness and his performance is mentioned, how, much, how many times your performance and your greatness is mentioned, all right? So here we go. Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 19. The apostle Paul is writing these Colossians, and he says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. He's referring to Christ. And through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. How many times did you hear your greatness in there? How many times did you hear your performance in there? I didn't hear anything about you. I didn't hear anything about me in there. I heard all about Christ, nothing about you. Here's the next one. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 9. Paul repeats this whole idea again. He says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity, all the fullness of God lives in bodily form, and he says, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. Anybody hear about your goodness and your greatness in there or mine? I didn't hear anything about me in there. I didn't hear anything about you. I didn't hear your name. I didn't hear my name in there. I heard about Jesus in there. Okay? And I also didn't hear anything about your performance or mine. I hear him saying, I hear Paul saying that he is the one who has brought me to fullness. Christ has done it. Okay, here's the, here's the next one. Skip down to verse 13, chapter 2. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Uh, is your name mentioned in there? Is my name mentioned in there? Are you described as being glorious in there? Are you described as being the reason that all of your sins have been forgiven in there? Nothing about you, nothing about me. It's all about Jesus Christ in there. It's all about him and his performance. Paul wants us to understand that Christ was uniquely qualified to pay for the sins of humanity through his death on the cross. In other words, here's what Paul was saying. And it's very different from what all human religions and philosophies and what legalism teaches. Paul was teaching this. Believe in Christ and you are saved. Not believe in Christ and obey. Believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and you will be saved. Believe in Christ and his obedience, not yours. 
and you will be saved. That's the alternative to legalism. Now, I want you to listen to me because I'm going to say this as clearly as I can possibly say this. Because let me tell you something, there are a number of you here that would say, well, I know that you're, you know, that I know that it's, you know, that to be saved, you don't believe and obey. I know that you, you to be saved, you, you only trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But here's the thing. Many of you live your lives after you were saved on this perpetual roller coaster of God loves me, God hates me. God loves me, God hates me. And you do it on the basis of your performance. That's legalism too. You understand that? Well, I want you to listen to me on this. I'm going to say this as clearly as I can say it. The determining factor in my relationship, in your relationship to God, is not my past, your past, not my present or your present, but Christ's past and Christ's present. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, you see. This is why Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean to boast in something? Well, to boast in something means to say, that, well, this is why I'm so great. This is why I'm justified. Uh, to boast in something means to say, this is, this is where my glory is. Paul says, I'll never boast in my performance. I'll never boast in me. I'll never boast in what a great guy I am. I'll never boast in, in my obedience. I'll never boast in anything like that. I will boast in one thing and one thing only, the cross of Jesus Christ. I will never try to self-justify. Only justification that I will ever glory in is the justification that Christ made for me at the cross. And I'm going to tell you something. Families that build their spiritual foundation around the cross of Christ, oh my goodness, they give their kids freedom to ask hard questions, to intellectually scrutinize Christianity. They live in joy, not fear, guilt, and shame. They free their kids from the human trap of self-justification through performance, which ultimately ends with everybody in fear and guilt and shame. They don't manipulate their kids with fear, guilt, and shame. They can deal. Their kids learn to deal with their inner world, the complexity of their humanity, because their parents have taught them they don't have to be afraid of it because Christ has paid for their brokenness. And that if they trusted Christ, if they believe in Christ, that he plans on, slowly but surely, making them whole again. That's what happens if you build your families around the cross of Jesus Christ. That tree, and not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, let me end with this. I want to reemphasize this point again, one more time. That you cannot motivate people with fear, guilt, and shame to love Christ and to love people. You can't do it. Uh, uh, many years ago, a pastor and professor of sociologist by the name of Tony Campolo uh, was telling a story from his childhood about a, uh, a revival meeting that he, uh, his family attended and he was brought to. And this was back in the day, I mean, this was a long time ago, some of you don't, wouldn't remember this, but this is back in the day when tent meetings were extremely popular. And he talks about the fact that there was this stern evangelist who was speaking vividly and, and describing the the fiery torments of hell that awaited the unrepentant sinner. And closing his message, the speaker pointed a bony finger at the audience and he said to them this, he said, if you leave this place without knowing Jesus and cross the street outside and get hit by a car, you will go straight to hell. Reflecting back on the comment, on that moment, Campolo said this, and it's kind of funny. He said, the message did not make me want to know Jesus. 
But it did make me look both ways before I crossed the street. <laughs> In other words, it scared him. But it didn't make him want to know Jesus. Love for Christ and love for people will never be developed in children who are under duress, who are trapped in fear, guilt, and shame. Never happen. Only God's grace through the cross of Jesus Christ can do that. Moms and dads, some of you may feel this morning, you may look back at you know, how you raised your kids. Maybe your kids are adults. And you look back and you go, man, I made some mistakes. I, we were too legalistic. Can I tell you something? It is never too late to tell your kids you're sorry and to explain to them where you went wrong. Never too late for that. Those of you who are dads, uh, young dads, you've got kids still in the home. I want to challenge you this morning to build your family spiritually around the cross of Christ, not around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Model for them what it looks like to boast only in the cross, not in your performance. And I want to promise you this. There is nothing else that you will do for your family that will be more powerful than that. Building your family, your family tree, around the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the most powerful thing that you can do for your family. Bar none. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord, we acknowledge that uh, in our spirits, in our hearts, in our nature, uh, we are all uh, rebellious against you. We chafe against your lordship, your kingship over our lives. And one of the ways that we do that, Lord, is, is some of us just deny that you exist. But Lord, the way that many of us uh, chafe against that is that we just refuse to live uh, by your commands and by your truth. And we refuse to believe that we need a Savior. Lord, I pray this morning um, for those in the room today who have grown up in legalistic backgrounds in some way, shape, or form. Maybe they were burned deeply by Christianity, hurt deeply by this pseudo-Christianity that they were taught. Lord, I pray that maybe even this morning that you would, through this message of your grace, that you would heal that wound in them. Lord, I pray for all of us here today that we would be people who recognize that only you, Lord Jesus Christ, were qualified to pay for our sins. Our human performance can never make up for our, our sins. Only you can do that. Thank you, God, that you revealed yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. And that in the person of Jesus, you paid for our sins on the cross. We thank you for that truth and that reality. Lord, may we as a church build our lives and our families around that tree. And that, make that our family tree, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we would boast only in that. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship you.